One thing I ask of the Lord, and this I will seek, that I may gaze upon your beauty in the place where you dwell. God, would you grant us that request this morning? God, would you help us to gaze upon your beauty? And as Russ prayed earlier, and we're thankful for how you sent the word so that we could behold his glory. God, there are so many things that obscure that vision of glory, of the glory of your Son in us, our sin and our finitude. God, would you give us grace? Would you enable us, open the eyes of our heart to behold the glory of Christ and be blessed and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Luke 2? Um, this text needs little introduction. It's probably the most well-known and well-loved portion of Scripture related to the Christmas story. This text is the Christmas story. Uh, but no matter how well-known or well-loved it is to you, my hope this morning is that it will become better known and better loved to you, and more specifically, that Christ himself will become better known and better loved to you. Uh, there are two major scenes or sections in this passage, the history of Christ's birth, followed by the heralding of Christ's birth, and we'll jump right in. Look at verse 1 with me. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire sends out an edict that uh, census should be taken, probably for taxation purposes. And he says, everyone in the world should be registered. This is an exaggerated way, no doubt, to talk about uh, the ancient Roman Empire. But you can hear, I think, a hint of pride in that edict. He, he's sending out a decree to all the people in his realm, and he says, let all the world be registered. I decree everyone in the world needs to stop what they're doing, travel to their family's hometown, and report to me. So the story begins right, with a man sitting in Rome, sending out a decree as if he is the king of the world. But you know that this story will turn out actually to be about a different man whom God has decreed. And he will not change his mind. That he will be king of the world. And verse 2 adds to the historical setting of Christ's birth. If you look at that. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. That puts you in the Christmas mood, doesn't it? Uh, Luke adds little historical details like this throughout his narrative. And they're not without purpose. In the very beginning of this gospel, Luke dedicates the whole work to a guy named Theophilus, uh, maybe the, the patron who paid to enable Luke to devote himself vocationally to writing this. And uh, Luke says in that introduction and dedication that he's been following the life of Christ and the life of Christ's followers for some time, and he's purposed to put together a narrative of all that's happened 
And he says he's going to do this so that Theophilus and everyone who reads his gospel after Theophilus in verse 4 of chapter 1 would have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Theophilus would know exactly when this first registration happened. Theophilus would know exactly when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so he would gain certainty concerning the truthfulness of Luke's account of Christ's birth. This is why the good news is good news. is because this is history. This is not a myth. God the Son being born of a virgin. It's as much a part of world history as a man named Quirinius governing Syria is. Christ entered real history as a real man so that we who really exist can really be saved and really know God and enjoy Him. So listen to what Luke and the Holy Spirit through him is saying to you through historical details like this. You can have certainty concerning these things. This is true and certain history. And so you can bank your life and you can bank your eternity on this. And verse 3 briefly describes the decree of Caesar as it's carried out. Look at that. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So it happens. Uh, in verse 4, the camera angle shifts away from this big, broad, all-the-world, bird's-eye view and zooms way in to focus on just one couple who was making the trip to a small town in Israel. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This is wonderful. Caesar, believing himself to be ruling the world, sends out a decree. But God was ultimately the one ruling the world when this registration was decreed. God had a purpose for this registration to get one specific man to one specific town in order to make a specific point about a specific child who would be born. Now, God's purposes in history are largely inscrutable to us. They're beyond our figuring out, and there's no doubt that there was an infinite number of things that God was accomplishing through this massive migration, this registration. But most significantly... A worldwide census is declared, and seemingly the whole uh, Roman Empire is sent into mild upheaval. Also, that God could make sure a carpenter and his fiance ends up in Bethlehem when it's time to give birth. God is pulling the strings of world history in order to say something about a child growing inside of Mary, in order to say, This child is my king. This child is my son. This child is the fulfillment of all my promises and purposes. Now, maybe we need to back up. How exactly 
does Joseph and Mary ending up in Bethlehem send that message about Mary's son? Uh, What is so significant about the place that Christ would be born? Well, Luke pointed it out in verse 4. Bethlehem is David's city. Luke also tells us Joseph was a descendant of David, from the house of David, from the lineage of David. David, of course, was the great king of Israel, who was from Bethlehem. So what does David's city and David's family have to do with all of this? Long ago, a thousand years before this happened, God anointed David to be king over his people. And God promised that one of David's descendants would be a king who would reign forever. 2 Samuel 7, God told David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and he'll be a legitimate offspring of you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom then shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God promises to appoint a man who would come from David's body, from his family tree, from his bloodline, to reign forever. And a thousand years later, God says, here he is. God is not slack to fulfill his promises. How jarring it must have been for Mary to hear from an angel that Matt read to us in Luke chapter 1. Not only that she would conceive a child, uh, though she was a virgin, but she was also told her child would sit on David's throne and would not give it up. Verse 30 of chapter 1, the angel said to Mary, Don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh, Luke clearly wanted to emphasize the David connection of Joseph and Mary's destination. That's because the prophecies of the Old Testament are full, full of predictions and hopes for this coming forever king in David's line. And one thing they foretell is that this king would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2. You, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. How wonderful it is to consider that God accomplished the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy through the self-exalting and God-forgetting Caesar and used him to shine the spotlight on Mary's baby, not for Caesar to see, not for most of the world to see, but for people like us to see and say, in Bethlehem, this is just like I said, my son, the king in David's line. 
So Caesar and the rest of the world uh, thought this census is most significantly about chronicling the vastness of his empire. But actually, this census much more significantly is about God fulfilling his very great and very old promises and almost completely away from the public eye, right? The most significant thing that God is doing in the world is hidden from most of the world. Uh, do you ever get discouraged when, when you think about everything that's happening in the world and you think, oh, there's so much craziness going on all over the place and it doesn't seem like God is a part of any of it? Well, remember Mary and Joseph on the way to Bethlehem. God is the sovereign Lord of all history and all the world. And his purposes in history are inscrutable to us, but he has them. And the most eternally significant things that God is doing in the world today will not uh, get any coverage in any newspaper or on any cable news network. Don't let the world dictate to you what are the most important things happening on the globe today. I guarantee you, whatever is happening on the news networks right now is not as important as what is happening here, where the living God says he will meet his people personally when his word is preached. Verses 6 and 7 describe the birth of this great king. And the birth story sounds so normal. It's almost as if we're told it in passing. No great details. No spectacular fanfare. Look at 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So I take it that we aren't given any extraordinary details about the birth because there was nothing extraordinary about how the delivery happened. Uh, the setting or the scene of the birth is certainly unusual, so we're told that. He's wrapped up and placed in a feeding trough. And of course, the child is extraordinary, right? Conceived of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit, from the actual flesh and blood, the cells, the DNA of Mary, God the Holy Spirit miraculously created a complete human nature, body and soul, just like we have, that the Son would take as his own. So, just as God promised, the king would come from David's body. The conception of Jesus was an extraordinary miracle. But the birth of Jesus? Well, that was the same kind of, if I can put it this way, normal miracle that all of us have and all of our children experience. Uh, when we and they are born. And that's important. His birth is a normal, actual human birth because the Son became a normal, actual human. God the Son became a man like us in every respect. That's what Hebrews 2 says. God the Son did not just put on a man costume and appear to be a man. No, he actually became a man, all the while not discontinuing being God, 
not compromising or confusing in any way his divine nature, but really and truly, he became the true and legitimate son of Mary. Every bit as much he was and continued to be the true and legitimate son of God. Many have said this is the most astounding miracle God ever did in the world. It is hard to disagree that the only begotten, eternally begotten Son of God would become the firstborn Son of Mary when Quirinius was governor of Caesar of Syria. And after he lived about nine months as a baby in the womb of Mary, he was born in Bethlehem. And a few of our well-loved Christmas songs romanticize Jesus' birth. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Well, maybe at some point, but that certainly was not characteristic of his entry into the world. Another song says, no crying he makes. That's a medical emergency, isn't it? (laughs) If that happens. So probably not during his birth. He was born as a man. Bloody, crying, strangely colored, probably cold and shivering. His birth was human, difficult, painful, laborious, traumatic, all in accordance with the curse of God upon mankind because of his sin. Do you remember Genesis 3? The curse that God pronounces in response to man's sin Includes, right, the pinnacle of it is death, but it includes multiplication of pain and childbirth. And so isn't it fitting that the one God would send to take upon the divine curse upon himself so that we could be freed from it, so that we could be blessed forevermore, like we just sang. He would enter the world through a process that was so prominently marked by the curse of God. Jesus came to take upon himself the curse of sin, to experience in full, in our stead, in our place, as our representative substitute, the curse of God's holy judgment against our sin so that we don't have to. He took what we deserve so that he could freely give to us what he deserves. Eternal life and fullness of joy and loving fellowship with God. What love. And what humility and condescension. I said earlier the only extraordinary thing about the birth is the setting. But that place accentuates This humility and condescension and love all the more. Think about this. It it would have been a humble condescension of unimaginable proportions for God the Son to be born as a man in Caesar's palace, wouldn't it? Or any of the greatest of the kings on earth. But for the king of all the kings on earth, God the Son, For him, he was laid in a structure that was not only unfit for God to dwell in, it was considered unfit for humans to dwell in. The manger for animals is something filthy 
There are several newborn mothers in the church here. And if you, you know, transported them back to the first century and pointed to a manger and said, oh, go ahead and lay your baby there, they'd be offended. They would say, that's gross. This was the perfect place for the son to be laid as a newborn. Because no other cradle could display the glories of his might and mercy so perfectly. God, in complete and perfect control of the world, decreed a census to get them to Bethlehem. And then God, in perfect and complete control of the world, ensured that there was no place but a manger to lay him when he was born. God chose. God chose a manger for his son. God wanted his son born in the lowliest place. John Piper offers this reflection. This baby of God's, this son, is born in the lowest possible condition because that is the position from which he will serve us all the way to the cross and we will be saved. You know, during Jesus' ministry, later in Luke, Uh, Someone says, I'll follow you. Jesus responds by saying, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head in his ministry too. So God wanted his son and king in a feeding trough because that was indicative of how he would live and of how he would die as the humblest servant. This is unfathomable. Think about this. In humility and love, God the Son is born naked and bloody and crying and laid in a manger as a powerless baby boy. And he stooped lower still in even greater humility and love. God the Son died naked and bloody and crying out, nailed to a cross as if a powerless and condemned criminal. Behold your God. Behold your God. This is glorious. This is our boast and our joy and our comfort and our hope and our peace. And also our boast is because he humbled himself to this point, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So those of you who follow Jesus, you remember that he said, if you will come after me, remember I have no place to lay my head. If you will come after me, You take up a cross. You pursue this kind of humility and servanthood. This is the way you follow Jesus. This is the way you're pleasing to his Father. If you will be great, you become the servant of all. You live like the slave of all. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 8 begins a new scene. In the second major section, 
the heralding of Christ's birth. Look at verse 8 now. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, shepherds in this day were religious and societal outcasts. Why is that? Well, starters, uh, their occupation meant that they actually lived perpetually in an unclean status, according to Jewish ceremonial law. And they had a reputation that uh, fit nicely with their unclean status. They were notorious thieves, uh, sheep stealers. And no doubt this is part of why these shepherds were out keeping watch over their flocks at night. An extra-biblical Jewish law, I, I read someone say this, I didn't do independent historical research to confirm this, but we'll take his word, that extra-biblical Jewish law from the time actually forbid shepherds from serving as witnesses in local law courts. They were considered to be that untrustworthy. Now, we're not told these shepherds fit that uh, sad stereotype necessarily, but they do come from this class of people. This is so like God. When God sends an angel from heaven to announce the most joyous good news that the world has ever heard, he takes aim at the unclean and the lowly and the despised and the overlooked and the rejected and the sinner. God is pleased to choose and rescue and exalt the humble. And Mary celebrated that same truth in Luke 1. In response, in praise to God for being chosen to bear the Christ child, 1.46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Verse 48, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 51, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This scene in the pasture opens in a pretty uh, humdrum fashion with the lowly. Things change in a hurry in verse 9. Look at verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And you cannot improve upon the King James here. They were sore afraid. The appearance of the angel is so awesome that they are undone with terror. And that was not the most terrifying thing that they saw. The glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. That verb, shown around, occurs only one other time in the Bible. It's also from the pen of Luke. It's in Acts when Paul is recounting what happened to him on the Damascus Road. When Christ appeared to him and this bright light shone around him that was terrifying and was so terrifyingly bright that it literally blinded him. Paul left his encounter with the glory of God unable to see. The glory of God appeared... Uh, in other important moments in salvation history before this. Uh, on Mount Sinai, it said the glory of God came to rest on Mount Sinai so that all the people trembled and the mountain itself trembled. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle that was built in Moses' day. And Moses, the same Moses of whom it was said, spoke in a way that's described somehow as face-to-face with God. 
as a man speaks to his friend. This Moses was unable to enter the tabernacle when the glory of the Lord rested in it. The temple that was built in Solomon's day, it says the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests were unable to stand up to minister to it. This glory of the Lord here refers to a special, awesome, terrifying manifestation of God's presence. And it signals to the people of God in a special way that our holy God is here to meet us. What a wonder that this glory appears on a hillside outside Bethlehem. That God would make his presence manifest in an extraordinary way. So the shepherds can see somehow some kind of display of God's holy perfections, of his beauty, of his strength. Even more astounding is after the glory of the Lord shines around that an angel would tell sinful men, don't be afraid. That's what he says next in verse 10. The angel says to them, fear not. Fear not. Why should a sinful man not be afraid in the presence of God's radiant glory? Fear not for, here comes the reason, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not because... I don't come announcing the holy and just judgment of God. I come bringing good news. He comes with a gospel to announce. And how sweet is this phrase from verse 10? Good news of great joy. Great joy. In verse 9, they were filled with great terror. And now there is news of great joy. Whatever this news is, it must be so profoundly good that it could produce a joy that is so great that it can actually swallow up the rightful fear that a sinful, unclean man feels standing in the presence of God. The shepherds don't know what the good news is yet. The angel tells them specifically what it is in verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David... A Savior who is Christ the Lord. There it is. That's the good news which can turn horror and dread of God into exuberant joy in God. Today, a Savior is born. A Savior has entered the world. A Savior who was given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And the angel announces the identity of this newborn Savior at the end of the verse. There are two titles given to him. He is called Christ, and he is called the Lord. Now, Christ is the name of the office that Jesus came to fill. And since he filled it, it became associated with him personally, like another name. So he is called Christ. Christ means the anointed one the one who was, had oil poured on them to symbolically signal that this person was set apart, consecrated to God for some special purpose. In the Old Testament, 
those who were anointed, we see kings anointed, we see priests anointed, we see prophets anointed. So there's a sense in which Jesus comes as the Christ, that he is the ultimate prophet from God, the ultimate priest from God, the ultimate king of God. I think the Bible's emphasis pretty clearly lies in that last office. The hope for the Christ, the anointed one, is for God's king. Uh, You may remember David himself was anointed when he was set apart by God publicly to be his king. So David was a Christ of sorts. But the hope for the Christ quickly after David became associated with the greater David that God promised, another anointed king, the one who would sit on David's throne forever. And so the angels announce, today a Savior is born in the city of David, the Christ. The other title given to this newborn Savior is incredible. He is the Lord. Now, this is not the first time that the Lord has made an appearance in this story, right? A couple of verses earlier in verse 9, remember an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And now they hear of a Savior who is the Lord born in Bethlehem. The human baby in a manger is the very same Lord whose angel was sent to make this proclamation to the shepherds. The baby of Mary is the very same Lord whose radiant glory was terrifying the shepherds. The infant in the manger is the holy Lord of glory. How how could this be? How could this child, for one, be both the Christ and the Lord? How could it be God's king and God? The king descended from the body of David that God promised is God himself? God's anointed human king is God? Yes, this was God's plan all along. The throne of David was established by God as the throne from which he would personally rule over his people as a descendant of David. When God made David king and then promised to install one of his descendants on that throne, this is the way that God planned to reestablish himself as the rightful and only king over his people. God planned to reign over his people in their midst as a man, descended from the flesh and blood of David. You know, the Old Testament uh, understands this. God revealed this. So, So faithful readers of the scriptures in the first century should be amazed, but perhaps not surprised, to hear that the long-awaited king in David's line was God. I could take you to many places, but um, let me show you a few things that the Bible says in Chronicles, where the Old Testament authors actually identify David's throne as the very throne of God. You can just write down these references and look at it later. First Chronicles 28, 5. 
David speaking and says, Of all my sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. 1 Chronicles 29.23, speaking of that son of David, Solomon, says, Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king. What do you mean Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as the king? Because God's plan all along was to reign over his people in the midst of his people as a descendant of David. He is Christ the Lord. And seeing this, we begin to see, just really quickly, I can't help but point this out. We begin to see how this manger baby shines forth God's triune glory. God is the kind of God with whom it is possible that God can send God. A few verses after this one in Luke 2, in verse 26, Simeon, a devout man in the temple, sees the Christ child and calls him the Lord's Christ. So in verse 11, he's called Christ who is the Lord. And then in verse 26, he's called the Christ of the Lord. How can he be the Christ of the Lord and Christ who is the Lord at the same time? The same way that the Word can be with God and be God at the same time. We see the Father sending His Son. We see God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Now before we move on to the next verse, it's worth recentering a little bit and, and just focusing a little longer. This verse is, is the apex of the whole passage. So it's worth re- refocusing on why this announcement of Christ the Lord is supposed to be good news of great joy. It's good news of great joy for the shepherds and for us, not simply because Christ the Lord has come. More than that, it's because Christ the Lord is born as a Savior. And more than that, Christ the Lord is born in Bethlehem as a Savior unto you. That might be the most precious A couple of words in this verse. It's certainly emphatic. It's placed right at the beginning of the announcement. For unto you is born this day. The good news of Christmas is that God the Son was born unto us. Not as a Savior and a King and a God generally speaking. But as a Savior for you. And as a King for you. And as a God for you. So the angels made some pretty high and lofty claims to the shepherds. And in verse 12, he tells them how he intends to prove these things are true. Look at verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So a sign is given from God to confirm that uh, the high and exalted things that he's been saying through the angel actually is true. And the confirming sign of these incredible proclamations. It seems a little mismatched, doesn't it? It seems so meager. Fear not, great joy. A Savior's here, a King is here, God is here. 
How can we know? Go to Bethlehem, you'll find a baby. I mean, it's an effective sign. The odds of finding a baby wrapped up and lying in a feeding trough are pretty low. So, so it works as a confirming sign. But doesn't the nature of the sign seem so beneath the dignity of the things that the angel has announced? Only for us who are unable to see so often glory in humility and servanthood and in true self-giving love and free mercy. Because when the angels in heaven see this mighty condescending God, they cannot help but cry out in worship. The host of heaven looks down and sees this infant, and heaven erupts in praise. Look at verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. 1 Peter 1 tells us that angels longed to see this day. That they heard the predictions of the prophets concerning the when and the who of the Christ. They heard the predictions of the suffering of Christ, of the subsequent glories of Christ, and they longed to see this day. And so when the angels see, they erupt in praise. And there probably could not be a more perfect praise offered to God at this time than that song in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is what the humble birth of the exalted Lord accomplished. Up in the highest heaven, glory to God. Down on the earth, peace to men. Ultimately, Jesus came for one supreme purpose, the glory of God. Christ the Lord is born so that God's glory would be seen and enjoined and celebrated by men and angels. And God chooses to glorify himself on earth and in heaven by making peace with sinners, by giving peace to sinners. This is how God chose to display the beauty of his perfections. This good news, which brings great joy and perfect peace to men. Uh, The great prophecy from Isaiah 9 about the coming Christ anticipates this announcement, on earth peace to men. The child born unto you is called, among other things, the prince of peace. And it says that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. What will it be like to live under the rule of this great God and King when he comes? It will be like never-ending, ever-increasing peace. It's the kind of peace that makes someone fear not in the presence of God's radiant glory. Because you know you have a Savior and a King and a God who is for you. Now, who are the recipients of this heavenly peace? The end of verse 15 is not easy to translate. 
so your, your Bible might say something a little different, but I think that the ESV and NASB get it basically right. On earth, peace among men with whom God is pleased. And the NIV similarly, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. What is meant by this? Okay, who are those with whom God is pleased? A more wooden translation of the phrase could be peace to men of his good pleasure. Well, who are the men of his good pleasure? Well, it can't be and isn't that God gives these peace to men who are the ones who do things that are pleasing to him. Because then the peace on earth would be nowhere on earth, right? Rather, it means God gives this peace to men in accordance with his own good pleasure on the basis of his free and sovereign grace alone. And we're tipped off in this direction because the only other time in Luke's gospel that he uses the word, this word, good pleasure, to speak of God's good pleasure, is in Luke 10, Luke 10, 21, where it says, in the same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, the truths about Christ and who he is, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children, representing the lowly, the despised, the overlooked, the humble. Yes, Father, for such was your, here's the word again, good pleasure, or for such was your gracious will, as the ESV has it. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So God gives peace according to his gracious will to the humble in accordance with his own good pleasure. He sent his Son to be born in the lowliest kind of way to save the lowliest kind of men. In verse 15, the angels leave the scene. The shepherds decide what to do next. Uh, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So the shepherds, who had been so faithfully keeping watch over their flocks at night, decides to leave behind their flocks. That which had previously been their chief concern they leave it beside because they have a greater concern. It's like the fishermen who would later leave their boats and their nets to follow Jesus. These shepherds leave their sheep unattended despite the threat of other shepherds because of the surpassing worth of something else. They are no longer most concerned about the welfare of their sheep. Keeping their sheep is no longer their greatest desire. They have a new controlling desire because they have a new supreme treasure. This is what it looks like to have faith in and follow Christ. And so the shepherds look at each other. They say, let's go, let's go. And notice at the end of verse 15, the shepherds rightly recognize the Lord has made this thing known to us. They, they acknowledge the truth that we talked about last verse. God has given peace to us. 
in accordance with his good pleasure. Mercifully, he has made this known to us. What God was not disclosing to the wise and the mighty and the understanding, he was revealing to ones like little children in the eyes of the world, these shepherds. I hope you, like these shepherds, acknowledge and thank God not only that he was gracious to send a Savior, but that he was gracious to make that known to you. You should be profoundly thankful that unto you a Savior is born and that God has made known this thing to you. So in verse 16, we see the shepherds in a hurry and they're spurred on by the thrill of Christ's birth. Verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 17 now. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So the same verb used of God in the previous verse, these shepherds show up, and now they are the ones making known. They make known to others what God had made known to them. They rush to Bethlehem. They find the manger of the infant Jesus, and they can't keep silent about this knowledge from God that is shared with them. What, what knowledge specifically? The end of the verse said, concerning this child. I love that. They don't show up eager to share about the angel's appearance. They don't show up eager to recount their personal feelings about uh, their experience with the angels, how they were so afraid. They weren't eager to point out how they were chosen to receive this revelation. They were eager to recount what was said concerning this child. And the shepherds here share in the very same privilege then that was given to the heavenly host of angels to declare to others the truth concerning this child. Should we not be characterized by this same eagerness to make known to others what God has made known to us concerning this child? And don't you love this, this beautiful irony here? God chose as his first witnesses shepherds. God chose people who were not allowed to serve as witnesses in human courts. God loves to exalt and use the humble and despised. You who feel most unworthy to speak about Christ could be exactly the kind of person God is pleased to use. This is how God's glory shines in the most bright, in the most clear, in the most lovely way. In verse 18 and 19, briefly talk about the buzz around town created by the shepherd's talk. 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So amazement abounds. In verse 19, but Mary, by contrast, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So in verse 18, all who heard, they said about busily chattering. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Uh, they're excited. Uh, they might not necessarily, though, be internalizing the significance of all of these things. But Mary is quietly thinking through all the things that have happened. She's pondering these things. She's, she's trying to put it all together. She's treasuring the thought of them. So I think Luke is trying, just as he commended to us, the shepherds, go and tell, is commending to us Mary, 
Go and think. Ponder these things. Turn these truths about the coming of Christ over and over again in your mind. Try to piece together more and more of what it all means. And in doing so, treasure them. Treasure them. I, I hope that you have opportunity or make opportunity to do both of these things this Christmas season to tell others about Christ, but also to silently ponder him and treasure him in your heart and in your mind. In verse 20, the story comes to a close. I love how it ends. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. So the shepherds leave the manger side and they do the exact same thing, same words used, exact same thing the angels did in verse 13 and 14. Glory and praise. So these shepherds, after sharing in the the task of the angels, now they join in on the praise of the angels. They join the song of heaven and they join the joy of heaven. So in closing, here's the question I want to pose to you. God says that this is good news of great joy. Do these truths bring you great joy? Do you really feel the weight of the goodness of this good news? If not, why not? Why is your heart not moved? Rejoicing at hearing about the glory of God and an offer of peace from God and an offer of great joy from God, and participation in the coming reign of King Jesus that will never end, and salvation from sin, something brings you great joy. Or, or something would if, if you had it. Something, whether you have it or not, is the object of your great joy. Something is your supreme treasure. What could you find great joy in over and above this Savior? This good news is for you, and this Savior is for you, for anyone who lives repenting and believing. Anyone who lives turning from sin, including turning from the sin of rejoicing in things above God. Anyone who will do that and personally entrust himself to Jesus, believing that what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection as a man is completely sufficient to save you. Anyone who will live repenting and believing, I bring you tidings of good news, of great joy that a Savior is for you. A Savior is born for you. He is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you sent your Son to become like us so that we could become your adopted sons. So that we could become with the man Christ Jesus, blessed of you and happy in you and destined to live forever in loving fellowship with you and enjoy you 
God, I pray that you would give some here today the gift, the gift of salvation in Christ, some who have have not received it before today. And God, for those who have, I pray that you would give us grace to glorify you by rejoicing in this sweet gospel. We pray this all in Jesus' name.